You're listening to Irish Radio Canada at home and abroad, and a new book has just been published by Patrick Mannion. It's called A Land of Dreams, Ethnicity, Nationalism, and the Irish in Newfoundland, Nova Scotia, and Maine, 1880 to 1923. And it's a comparative history of Irish community and identity in St. John's, Halifax, and Portland. And wherever they settled, immigrants from Ireland and their descendants shaped and reshaped their understanding of being Irish in response to circumstances in both old and new worlds. And in the land of dreams, Patrick, he analyzes and compares the evolution of Irish identity in three communities on the prow of northeastern North America, St. John's, Newfoundland, Halifax, Nova Scotia, and Portland, Maine, in the late 19th and early 20th centuries. First of all, Patrick, thanks a million for coming along and having a chat with us. Thank you so much for having me. And congratulations on the book. Oh, thank you. I know a work like this doesn't happen overnight. There's a lot of research and a lot of work has gone into it. When did you kind of when did the idea ferment to the point of where you said, I'm going to put all this in between two covers? Absolutely. Um, it's, certainly been a, it's certainly been a lengthy process. Uh, I've been uh, telling my, my family and friends that I've really been working on this book for the best part of 10 years. Um, it, it began really in 2008 when I uh, left my home in Newfoundland to go to Toronto to begin my, my PhD in um, Irish Canadian history at the University of Toronto, which I did with, uh, with Mark McGowan who is himself uh, you know, a well, well-known and well-respected historian of, uh, of Irish and Catholic Canada. And um, I knew when I was going to Toronto that I wanted to do a comparative study of Irish community and identity. And um, uh, I knew I'd worked on St. John's in my master's. St. John's is my, my home city here. And uh, I'd done a master's thesis on Irish nationalism in St. John's during the period of the First World War. And I knew that there was still a great deal of research to be done on generational Irish uh, ethnicity and identity in St. John's. So that is uh, how not just Irish immigrants, but how their descendants, how the children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren of immigrants continued to identify with Ireland. And a lot of that St. John's story had, uh, had still to be told. So I knew I wanted to do Saint jo- a study of Irishness in St. John's, uh, and I knew I wanted to do a comparative study with other cities. So at that point in 2008, Halifax actually had very much been uh, been understudied. Uh, the Irish community in Halifax had been understudied. There had not really been any serious scholarly research on, on Irish, Irish Halifax up to uh, up to that point. So uh, so I chose Halifax as my as my second city for that reason. Now since then, there's been a number of really good publications uh, that have come out about the Irish uh, in Halifax. Um, actually, Mark Mark McGowan um, edited a volume of the uh, Canadian Catholic Historical Association's journal Historical Studies, which focused uh, focused on on Halifax. But uh, anyway, that's why I chose St. John's and Halifax as the sort of starting points for this comparative study. And Mark then suggested that I added an American city for sort of an additional transnational uh, foil to be able to compare Irish. Uh, Canadian or British North American experiences with Irish American ones. Um, so I considered a number of cities uh, to to add a third to add to add to my to my comparative study of St. John's and Halifax. I thought briefly about Boston, but Boston really is too big compared to the other two medium-sized cities. Um, and uh, I considered Portsmouth uh, in New Hampshire, but Portsmouth was actually really too small, and there was hardly any work done on the Irish there. So Portland, Maine. 
had uh, and continues to have a very assertive um, and uh, you know and, and fairly significant Irish population there. So I eventually settled on Portland as the third city in the uh, in the comparative study. So then I did my completed my PhD thesis between 2008 and 2013, and uh, ever since then, uh, and most recently over the course of a, of a shirk funded postdoc at Boston College, I've been revising the, the PhD dissertation into uh, this book, which I have retitled A Land of Dreams. Patrick, then when I look at uh, the three cities, like from my own knowledge of, of history, the Irish have been in Newfoundland going back hundreds of years, Absolutely. whereas yeah. I would say Nova Scotia, Halifax, Nova Scotia would be a more recent, comparatively speaking. Somewhat, yes. Yeah. And Portland would also, because I would consider Nova Scotia and Portland would have had major uh, influxes uh, during and after the famine, whereas yes. uh, whereas Newfoundland was going back as their way pre-famine from fisheries. Yeah. Did that in itself yield any differences? Yes. Absolutely, and uh, and you're absolutely right. The Irish in, in Newfoundland, I, al- I often call Newfoundland one of the oldest outposts of the Catholic diaspora, um, because Irish settlement in Newfoundland really goes back to the uh, to the 17th and the 18th century, uh, the peak decades of, of migration from the Irish southeast, uh, from about 30 miles around Waterford to uh, to uh, St. John's and to to eastern Newfoundland more broadly, uh, really peaked in the the late latter decades of the 1700s and the early decades of the 1800s. It is, as you say, very much a pre-famine, a pre-famine migration. Um, Halifax is also a very old Irish community. Um, what we see in Halifax in many cases is what we would call a two-boat migration. Uh, individuals, families that have established themselves in Newfoundland first, and then after uh, a few years, relocated to uh, relocated to urban Halifax, where where jobs were were more easy to to acquire. But Irish Halifax is also a very old population, uh, fairly with a pre-famine with a pre-famine community in Halifax as well. Um, Portland, completely different. Uh, in addition to its to its setting in the United States, uh, Portland's population is very much a famine post-famine uh, population. Uh, coming from uh, the west of Ireland, County Galway in particular, and uh, many of many of the immigrants to Portland were Irish speakers, and uh, and they they would arrive from the 1840s and 50s right into the 1880s as well, and that's really something that I wanted to to focus on in this comparison is the generational spread of Irish ethnicity, Irish identity, and Irish nationalism. Um, so the, one of the questions I was looking at is could, uh, to what extent were the responses of the, the immigrant and the first generation Irish Americans of Portland, how did their engagement with Irish nationalism compare to uh, the third, fourth, fifth, and even beyond uh, Catholic Irish in St. John's and in, in, Halifax, uh, in Halifax as well? That's something that I was really looking to to focus on in this uh, in this study was the generational spread and the generational persistence of Irish identities in the diaspora. Before we discuss some of that, you mentioned that Newfoundland would be predominantly southeast Waterford in that area, yes. and again back 1700s. Whereas you're yes. saying uh, in Maine, it's uh, there's a, a strong Galway influence. Absolutely. Yes. Then in yes. Nova Scotia, uh, was there a regional? identity, and as a result of those regional identities, 
do you think, and when we get into more detailed discussion on the results of the study, that the region of, region of origin may have influenced what was the ultimate outcome? Um, that's sort of a bit difficult to say. Now, in, in Halifax, the population uh, is also drawn predominantly from the south and southeast, uh, a larger proportion from Cork uh, than from uh, Waterford and Wexford, as you would see in Newfoundland, but it is still a predominantly south and southeastern Irish, uh, Irish community. But when I'm looking at this intergenerational, this inter- intergenerational spread, a lot of the regional, uh, you know, rivalries and, and particularities that you would have seen between, between say, Waterford men and Wexford men, uh, which would have been quite relevant in St. John's in, the, say, the 1820s, 30s, and 40s, uh, they are not so much a factor when I'm talking about responses to Irish nationalism as you get into the 1880s, 90s, and, uh, and then into the 20th century as well. Um, I don't, I didn't really find uh, much... Uh, Difference, as I say, in these regional particularities or regional identities of the Irish in the in the in the three cities that uh, uh, that I that I studied. So then, uh, the, given the time period that you selected, why particularly did you zone on 1880 to 1923? I chose that period again. It's really related to what I wanted to talk about in terms of gener- in terms of the generational spread of Irish identity. Um, it would give me a chance to to look at the immigrants in Portland, and then the generation, uh, the transition rather to a uh, to a predominantly American-born population, which we would see, you know, by the 1910s, 1920s, um, and then compare that with an almost entirely native-born, that is, North American-born community communities uh, in St. John's and in uh, and in Halifax as well, and um, the 1880 to the 1920 period allows me to look at two sort of surges in Irish nationalism. In the 1880s, of course, you have the Land League uh, and you have Charles Stuart Parnell's movement for Irish home rule. And um, then in the 1920s, of course, you have the Anglo-Irish War uh, and the Civil War, uh, the eventual uh, establishment of the Irish Free State. And what I wanted to do was compare these sort of two surges in nationalism uh, in these communities uh, where the, the generational distance to Ireland is, uh, is, quite, uh, is quite different. So, uh, so the 1880 to 1923 period allows me to look at these two uh, important periods uh, in, in Irish history uh, where we see uh, significant evolution in the nationalist movement in, in Ireland. And in that evolution in nationalist movement in Ireland, would you say in, from your analysis that there was a divergence or any change between what would have been on the U.S. side and the Canadian side in how the uh, attitudes were evolving within the diaspora? Yes, absolutely. And uh, I'm certainly not the first scholar to, uh, you know, to, to suggest this finding, but, but what, what I found uh, over the period 1880 to 1920 was an increasing divergence in how uh, the Irish in British North America, that is Canada and Newfoundland, uh, Newfoundland, of course, did not join Canada until 1949, an increasing difference between the British North American responses to Irish nationalism and the Irish American responses to, uh, uh, to, to Irish nationalism. In Portland, what we see is a much more, um, uh, much more radical, much more Republican uh, 
uh, expressions of Irish nationalism. Um, they were uh, far more likely to, uh, to, to write down and record and publish uh, virulently anti-British and anti-imperial um, sentiments. Whereas in St. John's and Halifax, although there were certainly Irish Republicans in both cities, especially as you get into the later period, even after the Easter Rising and the rise of Sinn Féin and Republican nationalism in Ireland, um, those of Irish descent in St. John's and in Halifax never really got on board with the idea of an Irish Republic. Uh, they could never really conceive of Ireland without its... Uh, without uh, conceive of Ireland as being outside of the, uh, the British Empire uh, because they themselves, in many cases, have been brought up to, uh, uh, to revere their place within the Empire. But as I say, I'm not the first scholar to, uh, to, to make that finding. Martin Gowan has, uh, has said this, uh, David Wilson, uh, Willie Jenkins, and, uh, and others have, uh, have made similar arguments. So in many ways, what you're concluding is that the Irish in British North America, as distinct from in the US, <coughs> actually integrated um, more uh, within their identity than maybe on the American side. Perhaps you could say that, yeah, but they certainly never forgot that they were Irish. Um, at least in uh, you know, at, at least in the the examples that uh, that that I've studied, you know, they uh, they continued to to be part of um, of Irish ethnic associations. Like I looked at the Benevolent Irish Society in St John's, the Charitable Irish Society in Halifax, um, and uh, they, they 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 never lost sight of that uh, of that Irishness, but. They were by this point uh, Newfoundlanders uh, or Nova Scotians or, or Canadians, because again, you know, we're, we're talking, uh, you know, almost a, a, in some cases a century after the, uh, the, the the peak decades of of migration, and um, uh, so so their, their Irish identities uh, were, were sort of were more intergenerational, and uh, they had been brought up, you know, in many cases going to. Uh, Canadian schools or, or, or St. John's in, in Newfoundland, uh, Catholic schools run by the, by the Iron Christian, Irish Christian Brothers, where their Irishness was certainly reinforced. Um, but, uh, but, you know, as, as was a pride in, in the British Empire as well. And where I'm coming from, I think, as, as I'm listening to you, is that the Canadian um, ethos is very much an accommodation and an acceptance of the divergence and the, the diversity. And as a result, having a dual identity is something that's very comfortable. Whereas in the US, um, having uh, an American identity as your primary identity is something that appears to be very strong. True enough, true enough. But at the same time, um, you, you, you know, you, you would think that the Irish in Portland may have been under more pressure to assimilate and uh, and to uh, and to integrate. Uh, but at the same time, they were very, very strong in their in their Irish nationalism as well, um, and uh, and their their Irishness was very much a way of of, of becoming American. Um, so you know, it's 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 difficult to say. I think that. Uh, uh, um, that the uh, the Irish in Canada 
and uh, and you know in in Newfoundland would have been more comfortable with their with their Irishness than than the Irish in uh, than the Irish in Maine. That's not that's not really a finding that I think that that, that I think the book reflects, okay. reflects so much. So then, during the period of 1916, 1914, 1918, and the Civil War, and during the Land League, were the responses and the reaction of the three different communities noticeably different? Um, in During the period of the Land League, there was actually uh, considerable uh, similarity in, in all three. Um, there, were branch, there were formal branches of the Land League in both Portland and in Halifax. And these branches brought the Irish there into close contact uh, with the, with the whole, with the broader movement, with the movement elsewhere in North America and uh, in Ireland as well. In Newfoundland in the 1880s, it was a little bit different. Um, there you had church-run, Catholic church-run uh, fundraisers for the Land League as opposed to a formal branch of the Land League. Um, but the overall rhetoric is, uh, is, is largely similar. Actually, the biggest difference in the 1880s was that in Halifax, uh, we actually see more opposition to the Land League than either in St. John's uh, or Portland. It was sort of seen as a seditious, disloyal organization. Um, but certainly in the 1880s, uh, we see quite a, quite a bit of similarity between all three. What's so interesting about the later period, about uh, the 1920-21-22 period, um, is that in, in St. John's, for example, there were just 127 Irish-born people in the town in 1921. And, um, they, uh, they, but they, you still see this tremendous surge in Irish identity and Irish nationalism uh, and, uh, in, in all three cities. Uh, and in St. John's and Halifax, where you have almost exclusively native-born, North American-born uh, communities at this point. Um, all three, you see this sudden surge in uh, interest and engagement with the affairs of Ireland in, in 1920-21. And um, you definitely see much more Republican sentiment in uh, Portland by, by that stage. Um, the rhetoric of the Irish Nationalist Associations that were present in St. John's and Halifax uh, was uh, uh, tended to be at least their public expressions tended to be much more loyal and constitutional. Uh, they wanted uh, essentially uh, an Irish self-governing dominion, uh, as was the case in Canada and in Newfoundland at the t at the time within uh, within the structures of the British. That was at least their publicly stated demands of groups like the Self Determination for Ireland League, uh, which was very successful in both St. John's. Uh, and Halifax during this uh, during this period, whereas the Friends of Irish Freedom um, was uh, an assertively republican organization, and they thrived in Portland. But you see this tremendous surge in Irishness in all three cities in 1920-21-22, and it's really the climax of my story that I'm trying to uh, that I'm trying to tell. So during that period, Patrick, then was there much opposition? or resistance, or negative feedback within the three cities to this movement. Yes, and that's another interesting difference between the British North American cases and the Portland case. Um, in St. John's and in Halifax, uh, opposition to Irish nationalism was a sustained, organized movement, just as support for Irish nationalism was. And in both cases, it was led predominantly by the Orange Order. 
Um, the Orange Order, of course, uh, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, was uh, you know a very powerful institution uh, throughout British North America in the early 20th century. Um, were comprised not just Protestants of, uh, of Irish descent, but many many English Protestants and Scottish Protestants as well, and uh, brought them together um, in in this fraternal organisation, which at the time very much led opposition to Irish nationalism. So, in a city like Halifax, you have meetings and rallies and lectures going on in support of Irish independence. Uh, albeit not uh, an outright republic. At the exact same time, uh, you have rallies and speeches taking place opposing any form of Irish independence, as that would be, uh, as that would be seen as weakening the, uh, the broader British Empire. And in Portland, um, you see much less of that, much less overt opposition uh, amongst the, the Yankee population in Portland to Irish, uh, to Irish independence. At least publicly. At least publicly. So then, as um, 1921-22 uh, happened, did the environment in the three cities change radically, or even after 1916? Um, but certainly, again, like I say, you see this surge uh, in interest and engagement with Ireland. Even after 1916, responses to the Easter Rising were fairly subdued in all three cases. Uh, but once the Anglo-Irish War begins, and you see the establishment of these nationalist associations, like the Self-Determination League, which began in uh, began in Montreal and then spread to Ottawa, Toronto, and then further east, uh, when you see these organizations set up in each town, you see this sudden surge in uh, in interest in Ireland amongst uh, population who, as I say, in, in the cases of St. John's and Halifax, are several generations removed from the ancestral homeland. So that's, sort of, that's certainly the most significant change you see in the 1920-21-22 period. It is, as I say, the, the climax of the, uh, of the narrative of my, of my book, of the, uh, of the story that I'm trying to tell. Um, and you do, you do certainly see some more expressions of more radical Republican nationalism, even in St. John's and Halifax, but that was very much uh, a minority, at least in terms of what people wrote down publicly, uh, what's available for historians like me to study, uh, even after 1920, most expressions of nationalism in St. John's and Halifax tended to be constitutional, uh, was in favor of Ireland becoming a self-governing dominion within the, uh, within the empire. So Patrick, when you say the sources and what people wrote down and what is available for people like you to study... Where, what are your sources? Where do you go? Uh, and within the three different cities, what type of archives repositories were available for you to give you the, the data you needed? Sure. Um, the most abundant source that I used throughout the entire book was the local, were the local newspapers. Um, all three cities uh, had uh, a vibrant press, uh, there were there were numerous newspapers being published uh, in each, both daily and weekly papers. Some of these would cater towards uh, towards a Catholic readership, and they would be more likely to have uh, to have Irish news. Um, in Portland, actually, the uh, the Democratic Party's newspaper, the Eastern Argus, uh, because most of the most of the Irish would have been Democrats at this stage. And uh, the, the Eastern Argus uh, often often contained a great deal of Irish content as well. But as these newspapers 
um, that that tell us about you know the nationalist meetings that were happening in the towns, uh, lectures, rallies, visiting speakers, and uh, and so on, and then the day-to-day affairs of groups like the Land League uh, or the Friends of Irish Freedom or the Self-Determination for Ireland League. Um, and uh, so, so the newspapers certainly are are the most abundant source. I also rely quite heavily on uh, on church records, on clerical uh, correspondences, the papers of the of the bishops uh, and the archbishops of uh, of uh, of each city, as uh, as they would often comment on you know on what was happening in their in their communities, and uh, they would they themselves would would reflect on on what was happening in uh, in Ireland. And then in addition to that, the other important source I use are the minutes of the actual Irish uh, associations that I'm, uh, that I'm studying. Um, so as I, I think I mentioned, the Benevolent Irish Society of St. John's, uh, their minutes survive uh, throughout, uh, throughout the period that I studied. The Charitable Irish Society of Halifax, their minutes uh, survive throughout the, uh, throughout the period as well. So, um, but, uh, but newspapers certainly were the most abundant source that, uh, that, I, that I used for this book. So the other uh, item you had mentioned earlier on was that, you know, these, uh, at these times the people involved were uh, generationally removed. Like in Halifax, yeah. or in uh, St. John just said there were 127 Irish born only. Um, yeah. Yeah. How many generations when you were studying it were you able to analyse that people were removed? And I would accept uh, that in uh, Newfoundland yeah. there would have yeah. been more. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's hard to, you know, sort of, uh, you know, look at these, because immigration continued over so long a time, you know, you'll, you'll have some people, uh, some individuals, you know, who are, let's say, two or three generations removed from Ireland, uh, others who are six or seven generations uh, removed from Ireland, all, all being part of the same, being part of the same organization. So you're getting, you're getting a very widespread, but certainly the defining characteristic of St. John's and Halifax in particular as compared to Portland is, uh, is, is that the generational distance uh, on the whole between the, the people I'm studying and their ancestral homeland in Ireland was much greater. Uh, you know, in some cases, as I say, they may be two generations. Their, their grandparents may have been Irish. Their great-grandparents in Irish may have been Irish-born. Their great-great-grandparents may, may have been Irish-born. Um, but uh, but there would have, been, it would have been tremendous variety because immigration continued for, you know, for such a, a lengthy period of, uh, of time. So now that you have this under your belt, uh, what's the next piece that you're going to focus on? <laughs> well, right now, um, as part of my Shirk postdoc, which I'm doing at, uh, at Boston College, I'm actually doing a, a study of the ancient order of Hibernians, um, which, uh, which was, and it, of course still exists today, but it was in the early 20th century, North America's foremost uh, and most significant uh, Irish Catholic ethnic association. Um, they, they would have had uh, a couple hundred thousand members uh, in, you know, in the lead up to the, to the First World War, uh, spread right across, uh, right across North America, branches in, in Nova Scotia and Cape Breton, right to, uh, right to California. Even places like Hawaii had branches of the, uh, of the AOH. So what I'm studying at the moment is uh, how the Hibernians, as such a widespread organization, uh, led the invention and the evolution of Irishness, of being Irish 
in many uh, Irish Catholic communities. That's what I'm that's what I'm working on at the moment. I don't know if it's going to be enough for a, for a book or whether it will be a series of articles, but uh, but uh, we'll we'll see. Well, Patrick, uh, I, it's been fascinating chatting with you. Uh, the book A Land of Dreams is available on McGill Queen's University Press. Uh, that's mqup.ca, and you can find it there if you do a search on Google even for uh, Patrick Banyan, A Land of Dreams. It will land you in there, and you can purchase it there. Uh, available in paperback and hardback, I think. Uh, you have it in both. That's right. Yeah. Yes. And um, uh, any other uh, housekeeping details? We should. It's available. Is it as an ebook also? It should be. Yes. I'm not sure if it's available as an ebook yet, but uh, but I believe it should be uh, very very shortly. Indeed. Uh, and you've got uh, I see six photographs, black and white, four maps, 19 tablets. So. Um, a variety of supporting imagery to illustrate. Uh, Patrick, it's been fascinating chatting with you. It's been thank you, thank you so much. It's been really good, and uh, uh, I wish you every success with it. Um, thank you. Is there a website or anywhere other than I've given that we should direct people? No, I think the uh, the, the McGill Queen's website for the uh, uh, for the book is is definitely the best way to acquire it. Uh, uh, at, at this point. And I'm sure you will be heading out on a speaking tour. I can imagine you'll be in demand uh, at the various uh, academic institutes, the universities, certainly in the three cities and beyond. I can see you being uh, brought down to Toronto and here to Ottawa and a variety of other places. Hopefully, hopefully. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. Thank you very much.